Morning, church. When I say the word exodus, what immediately comes to your mind, I wonder? Perhaps for some of you, it means nothing. Perhaps some of you, when I say exodus, you can hear Bob Marley singing. Exodus, moving out your people. Come on. All right, I didn't know, no, no, not the clap, please. Do the clap. Sing if you're awake. Uh, Or when I say Exodus, some of you, you might perhaps think about the film from years back, The Prince of Egypt, right? Or if you're willing to date yourself. A little further back, a little older film is The Ten Commandments, right, with Charles Heston? Yeah. Yeah, you just dated yourselves. But some of you in here today have no association with the word exodus whatsoever, right? It's, it's a completely foreign concept or idea. Regardless of whether you're super familiar with exodus or have no idea what it is, the book of Exodus in the Bible is arguably one of the most significant books in the Old Testament because it records God's saving act on behalf of his people. One that brought them from slavery to freedom, from a fragmented group to a nation. Exodus sends a message. God is the all-powerful redeemer of his people. God is the all-powerful redeemer of his people. I know that's a message I need to hear weekly. I need to hear that message every day. New new polls come out that only 4% of Australians, 4%, that's including Roman Catholic, by the way, 4% attend church in this country. So, Cut that in half, only 2% of those are Protestant evangelicals. Cut that in half again, probably only 1% of those are maybe, maybe less, actually gospel-teaching churches. That's pretty depressing when you stop and think about it. And then you look around and you watch the news, and evil seems like it's prevailing. There's rape, murder, countries are about to go to war, significant superpowers. You feel the pressures of it. More and more people... Even your neighbors seem very apathetic and indifferent when you invite them to church. I'm not going to go there. And so you hear a message like, uh, God is all-powerful and uh, saves his people. And that seems like a universe, a whole world away from reality. What's that? We see it in the pages of Exodus, but come on. Is that happening today? That's exactly why we need to hear the message of Exodus. God is the all-powerful redeemer of his people then and now. You see, friends, the message of redemption found within the pages of Exodus is key to understanding not only Israel's history, but ours. I'm really excited to jump into it. And what we're going to do is actually unpack this that God is all-powerful, 
that he is the redeemer and that of his covenant people. So that's where we're headed today. Let's, let's bow our heads quickly and pray. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over all things, that you are powerful. Lord, that you redeem not just random people, but before the annals of time, before there was a people, you had a people in mind, your covenant people. So Lord, would you show yourself this morning to be the sovereign one, the supreme one who redeems your children, your covenant people for your glory. Lord, may this spur us on to know you, to delight in you, and to share you with others, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my kids, my kids love maps, right? Um, when we go to the zoo, the very first thing they, they ask is, Dad, can I have a map? Dad, Dad, can I have a map? Can I have a map? Yeah, 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 take them all. Just, you know, stop asking me that. You know, can I have a map? 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 And, and you know, which is fair, right? Because they hope to check out certain animals when you get to Taronga Zoo or the Reptile Park or, or whatever. But how on earth are they going to find their way to the monkeys or the lions in this massive place? Well, a map will guide them there. When we step back and look at the book of Exodus, it's pretty hefty stuff. 40 chapters in all. Obviously, giving only one sermon on Exodus will barely scratch the surface, but perhaps it would be useful if I gave you a map. So if you look up here on the PowerPoint, here's a map to kind of help us today. So chapters 1 through 18 is a departure from Egypt to Sinai. The next part is chapters 19 through 24, and that is the giving of the law. And finally, we have the building of their tabernacle in chapters 25 through 40. You could simplify this, though, as Aussies simplify names and they shorten names, or if there's already a short name, they put an O on it. But anyways, you could, you could simplify it by just saying this, departure, law, tabernacle, right? Departure, departure, the law, the tabernacle. That's, if that if kind of gives you just a bird's eye view of the book of Exodus. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever experienced this, um, but I wonder how many of you have ever read a novel before where you, as you read, the author has a particular axe to grind, a message to convey, right? That they, they just, it repeats it again and again. Sure, there might be various characters and plots, but all throughout the story, you have a clear message that's just going on and on and on. I remember when I first read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, right? And I had to read that for school. I enjoyed it, the book, actually. But the book, it's interesting. It's almost like Upton Sinclair ends every single chapter. It's a, it's a narrative and it's almost like he ends every single chapter saying, and that, boys and girls, is why capitalism is from the pit of hell, you know? And, and he's wrong, but anyway. But, it, um, but you know, that, that's, it, he's, he's communicating a message, right? It, stories communicate a message. Um, sometimes when you sit down with a friend for coffee and, and, and you ask them a question, sometimes they answer it with a narrative 
Well, it all started when I was six years old. And that's why the answer is this. So they're trying to communicate it. it stories do communicate a message. The same goes with the books of, uh, of Exodus here. The book of Exodus is that God is all-powerful, redeemer of his covenant people. That's what we see again and again and again. And, and I share that with you because it's easy it's easy sort of to get caught into the minutiae if you ever try reading Exodus, particularly when you get to the tabernacle, right? It's first, it's really exciting. You can see Charles Heston, let my people go. Or the Prince of Egypt, for those of you that are under 40, is I will never let your people go. Right, and somehow he has a, a, an Oxford accent as he, I don't know, anyway, whatever, right? I didn't know they had Oxford accents in Egypt back in those days, but whatever, there you go. So you get caught, though, it's exciting in the beginning because it's like, yeah, there's this exodus and the splitting of the Red Sea, and then you're like, whoa, this is great. And then there's this song where you're kind of like, oh, okay, it's interesting. And then you got the Israelites grumbling, right, against God, like, hey, you left us out here and we should be back in Egypt. And you go, wow, you rat bags, how, how ungrateful of you, you know. And, and, then, and then there's this another just dramatic scene of, of God meeting Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. And it's, it's just, it, you're feeling it. It's just intense. And, and then you get to the tabernacle and it's kind of like, oh, talk about a lame, you know, talk about a kill. It's like, this was like a good movie, and now it's like, you know, and then when you construct the tabernacle, make sure that you have these colors and that and this piece of wood and three chapters and five and eight chapters. Oh my gosh, when is this going to end, right? So I, I say all of that because at, sometimes in Exodus, we can either focus on some of the spectacular things, which are great and awesome, or get lost towards the end of it. But I want you to see Exodus as a whole, Okay, we're going through the first five books of the Bible and they're, they're written together. They're meant to be pushed together, as it were. And, and we'll explain a little bit more of that when the time comes. But for now, I want us to talk about the first point because remember, God is the all-powerful redeemer of his covenant people. So the first one, let's start with the first one. And, and we'll look at particular passages as we think about this. So God is all-powerful. Now, I realize that we're in church, okay? And it's common sense to hear something like that. But for Moses and the Israelites in slavery, it probably didn't seem like this was the case. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. I mean, they've been in bitter bondage for literally hundreds of years by the superpower of that day. Your parents and their parents and their grandparents have all been in this predicament. Nothing has changed. 400 years. I mean, think about the establishment of this country. I mean, 400 years goes way before that. 400 years ago. That's how long, I mean, you start to lose hope. You start to just think that this is your lot. Because who are you to think that you're any different than your parents and your grandparents and their, their grandparents, right? This is just who we are. We're just, we're people that are enslaved. 
We're, we're just the Israelites, the Hebrews. Then one day, out of the blue, this 80-year-old bloke shows up carrying a stick in his hand, wide-eyed, and says, I'm here to rescue you guys. Don't worry, I'm going to break the back of this superpower. Are you nuts? I mean, what would you think? Are you, look, man, you know, I'll, I'll respect you because you're 80, as I do respect those of you that are 80 in here. <laughs> but, but, hey, you know, the best for you, my friend, is probably just do some lawn bowls and let's call this a day. No, 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 no. You listen to me, young man. I'm going to go talk to the, 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 the man in charge of this place, Egypt, right? The, the, the ruler of the world of that day, as it were. Pharaoh himself. And I'm going to tell him to let you guys go, to let my people go. So put yourself in their shoes. You wouldn't have believed this guy. You would have thought that he's mad. And so he goes and he has this meeting with Pharaoh. And what does Pharaoh say? Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let your people go? I don't know this God of yours. I, look, I, I don't know who this pathetic God in which you claim appeared to you out in the bush somewhere. But what I do know is that you guys are lazy. Get back to work. We have 2,000 gods here that we worship, and you're all suddenly going to come to me and tell me that this God who I'd never even heard of, appeared to you and said to let your people go, take a hike. He basically throws down the gauntlet for a fight. Who is the Lord? I don't know or acknowledge this supposed God of yours. Who is the Lord that I, the king, should listen to his voice? I mean, really, come on. Who is the Lord? He's not asking for clarification. He's not inquiring. He's refusing to recognize God's authority. And now the Lord will answer that challenge. He will introduce himself to Pharaoh with full force. He's going to make himself known for who he is. In fact, the remainder of the book of Exodus is really an answer to Pharaoh's challenging question. I'll show you who I am. I am the Lord. Look at Exodus chapter 6. Jeanette just read that for us. In Exodus 6, key text here. Exodus 6, and next week we will have, if you don't have a Bible, we will have 36 of them sitting in the back for you to grab, okay? English Standard Bibles, so you can follow along. I want you guys following along the Bibles. It's important that you don't think it's my words, but this, I want you to see these are God's words. Right, so Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord... I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, 
I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore, now listen, listen here, show God's power, remember that's our point. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Then you will know that I am the Lord. It's fascinating. Did you see how the Lord desires to make himself known for who he is? Remember Pharaoh? Who is the Lord? I'm going to tell you who the Lord is. But the question here, here's a question I have for you. And it's interesting in verse 3, if you're tracking along, what does the Lord reveal about himself which wasn't known to Abraham, to Isaac, or to Jacob? Well, we see in the book of Genesis, the Lord is worshipped by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and others. But something shifts in Exodus. Now the Lord demands to be worshipped, and he does, not, does so by demonstrating his power, his supremacy over all other gods, which is seen in HD primetime with the plagues. Don't miss this. These plagues are not just random cataclysmic events. They have a purpose. They prove that God is all-powerful. There is none like the Lord. Each plague reveals a little more of God's authority. So why all these gnarly plagues? It's to show God's power. You see, the plagues and miracles in Exodus reveal to us that the Lord is sovereign, not only over Pharaoh, but over all creation. And it verifies that all the Egyptian gods are inferior. They are nothing. God is the all-powerful redeemer of his covenant people. Okay, turn to chapter 9. I want to show you this, this again, this idea that God is all-powerful. Because look at, this is fascinating. Look at chapter 9, verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people. Here we go. Why is he doing that? Because he's a big meanie in the sky? No. So that, you see that? so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put you, sorry, listen to this. For by now I could have put out my hand 
and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Wow, that is amazing. It is the Lord's desire that all nations come to realize that he alone is God. The Lord is on mission to express to the world who he is. The Lord desires to be known as the only God. There is no God besides him. Which is exactly what his covenant people sing about. They leave Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. There's the splitting of the Red Sea. They go through it. Pharaoh's army chases, or at least 600 of his, him and his chariots. Soldiers chase them. You, got, you know the story. The sea closes up. And what do they sing? What do they sing? They say this. Who, Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Do you see that? Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, it's, uh, you must learn to join the dance. La, 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 la. Have you even seen that movie or am I just up here? No one's seeing it? Okay. We were, yesterday, my kids and I, I had that, I had that movie, uh, or sorry, the, the movie soundtrack playing on Apple Music. And so my kids were like, uh, Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, and he's in, in this cartoon, The Prince of Egypt, he sings this song like, a single thread of a tapestry, though its colors can be found. And Josiah was just doing, you know, anyway, he was doing his, his, his little dance. But it's, it's the same thing. What Jethro, his father-in-law, says is after all of these events occur, Jethro says in Exodus 17, he says, you know, I'm going to paraphrase this, it's so clear after all of this has happened that there is no other God, that God is sovereign. He's, remember, he's the all-powerful one. And it is amazing how this book points to that fact again and again and again. You know, every time you see we may not see the splee, the, the splee. We may not see, we may not go down to Avoca Beach and I'm leading you guys and I'm like, you know, and then whoosh, <laughs> that happens, it'd be pretty cool. But we may not see frogs and all the other crazy plagues that happen, all the things we read about. But do you know what we do see? We see someone who is apathetic to God who could care less about the things of God, like an Andrew when he's younger, 
right? He said, I, I don't care who God is patient with and kind with and draws to himself. Yeah, we may not see this massive sea being split, but we see a miracle happening in salvation. That God removed from Andrew a heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh that the Lord saved Andrew. On Andrew's own, he would have never come to God. Ever. But by the grace of God, he did. That's a miracle. And, and that, by the way, if I split the sea open, you'd buy all cool, and then that was done. We get to be with those of us that are in Christ that have turned like Andrew, have turned to Jesus in repentance and faith. We get to celebrate that reality for eternity. Not just one five-minute, 20-minute, two-hour event, whatever it was, but for eternity. Salvation is of the Lord. God is all-powerful. That is amazing. And like the Israelites, it is appropriate, friends, when we step back and realize that. Listen, if you're a Christian, you can't be apathetic. It's impossible. That's an oxymoron. You can't be. It's, what do the Israelites do? The sea splits. They realize that salvation is of the Lord. Cool. You'd be like, Psh, you don't know the Lord. It's the same way if you have genuinely been saved, you, can't be, you won't be apathetic to the things of God. You'll be blown away by the power and grace of God. Amen. You will be. And, and you're like, well, I have friends that are Christians that are apathetic. I don't think they're Christians. Okay, because those two don't go hand in hand. So, and when we gather here on Sunday, we should come with an expectation that God is going to move because his word is being taught. We're praying to this same living God who did all of these things. So be here on time. <laughs> okay, no, 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 don't clap, go on, because you're late sometimes too. Really, this is not any ordinary day. This is the Lord's day. Let's gather with expectation and excitement. And let's be praying. And you know what? If you get here five minutes early, take that time to pray. Take that time to encourage someone next to you. Let's be excited that God is all-powerful, if you know him. Or unless you have a real cheap version of God that's just truncated and domesticated. Look, I hope I blast that away every single week as we continue to preach through God's word, because that's cheap. Don't, even, don't follow that fake God. It's not the real God. So, Let's keep plowing away. Our second point. So God is the all-powerful redeemer of his people. Second point, redeemer. So after the Egyptians are drowned in the Red Sea, Israel is at last totally free from bondage. They have been redeemed. So in order to properly understand this theme of redemption, we got to go back to Genesis. You'll remember God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Do you recall that? And, and he's an old bloke. He's like, are you serious? That's not, it can't happen. Well, when, when we open up the first page of Exodus, we see that promise happening. Joanna Shaw, who most of you know, I've heard her say this phrase, I don't know how many times. 
She gets excited and she goes, it's all happening. (laughs) Oh, it's all happening. And that's what's going on here. It's all happening, right? Babies are booming. This promise that God made to Abraham, it's it's happening. Because if you go to the the beginning of Exodus, let me me show you that. Go to Exodus chapter 1. We left off in Genesis, right, if, if we're going chronologically. In Genesis, there's a small community migrating to a new land. Jacob and his sons relocate in Egypt. About 80 of them. Maybe the size of this room? Maybe. Essentially, they go down their small community. That's where Genesis leaves off. But now we'll see this promise of their offspring being as numerous as the stars in the sky. Exodus chapter 1. Actually, actually let's look at verse 6. Verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Increase and multiply. Smells like Genesis, doesn't it? The command given to Adam and Eve and then to Noah. Yeah, the Lord's plan from the start was that his people would spread, filling the earth as his faithful representatives. But Pharaoh seeks to undermine God's plan for his people. And what does he do? He conspires with the midwives, with the doulas, right? And he says, look, when, when, when a male baby Hebrew boy is born, I want you to just go ahead and, and, and kill the baby there. And the midwives in this chapter, fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. So they spare the baby boys, and Pharaoh says, what are you doing? Well, we fear God more than we fear you. So Pharaoh comes up with this insidious plan. In verse 22, verse 22, what happens? Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. Okay, so this looks pretty bleak. We're talking about redemption, but Pharaoh just called for a genocide of infant boys. Seems like a far cry from redemption. But wait a second. The next chapter shows us a trailer, as it were, a sneak peek of redemption. Look at chapter 2. Next verse down, next port down. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bush rolls. But here's interesting. What does your translation say? She made for him a what? A, 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 a basket or a papyrus basket or bulrushes. Here's, here's what's interesting. That word in Hebrew is ark. She took the baby and put him in an ark. Do we know another story from the Pentateuch where God saves his people? and creates a new people 
starting with an ark? Could it be that the same author, the dude who wrote Genesis and Exodus, is trying to show us something? Could it be that he's connecting Noah and Moses as figures through whom God creates or redeems a new people for himself? Sneak peek of redemption just keeps rolling in because here comes Moses in this ark and who finds this ark? Pharaoh's daughter, which you would expect given the command as a reader, oh man, Moses is dead meat, right? Because the command was kill all the Hebrew boys. So you'd expect Moses' own daughter to slaughter this baby boy right then and there, right on the riverbank. But no, what does she do? She adopts him instead. The Lord is already working his plan of redemption. You have to understand, get this friends. The birth of Moses is not simply the retelling of an infant story, but represents the birth of a new people, a nation who will be redeemed. And through whom the redeemer himself comes through that nation. You see the, the Passover event? Take a lamb, put its blood over the doorposts. We know the story, don't we? Coming down, right? And you're spared by the blood of the lamb. Jesus, when he comes, guys start saying things and pointing at him, saying, look, it's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes and dies on a cross, it happens to be, guess when? Passover. This exodus is a sneak peek to a greater exodus that happens in the new covenant. This exodus is like a picture, a foreshadow of the greater exodus because all of us are in spiritual bondage outside of Jesus. Jesus, the great redeemer, the greater Moses, comes during Passover week, is the Passover lamb, dies in the place of sinners, and for those who will turn to him in repentance and faith, he grants eternal life. Praise God. That's why Exodus is so massive, you see. The Lord is setting up the rig, as it were. He's showing us a trailer of how he acts with his people. He is the all-powerful redeemer of his covenant people. So the last bit, the last bit I want us to look at is in chapter 20. Because here's why, and this is, this is what we'll wrap up with. As much as we were, you know, I was joking, the prince of Egypt, apparently no one's seen that, but there's a problem, there's a, there's a couple problems with that movie, and it's easy, it's low-hanging fruit to critique a, a, a movie, but it, how do I say this? It makes it look like the whole thing that God was on about was just helping these people that were just crushed under a dictator, and he just wants to give them their autonomy. It's a narrative that we hear, and, 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 Yes, the Lord does have compassion on them, but the Lord did not liberate Israel for freedom's sake alone. Like, oh, well, here, you know, oh man, 
here you go, now, you've, now you're your own people. No, 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 no. There were other nations in bondage, in slavery at the time. We don't hear about God saving them. No, there were promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I want us to look at chapter 20 because it'll make a lot more sense. Look at chapter 20. And God, verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, notice the focus here on redemption. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You notice there that the giving of the law is not given just in an abstract way. He's about to give the Ten Commandments. But the law is given by God to a people He has just redeemed. Do you notice God doesn't just drop the law down on them, but He points back to their redemption? Right? I brought you out of bondage in chapter 19. I carried you on eagle's wings. The law is only relevant for those who've been redeemed. It shows God's people how to be holy. This nation, the nation of Israel now, who now is a nation, will model to the watching world what it means to have a relationship with God and each other. And in that same pattern, friends, we see in the New Testament. The first 11 chapters of Romans is a righteousness from God, a righteousness outside of us. Eleven chapters. When you get to chapter 12, what does Paul do? He switches and he goes, therefore, in view of God's mercy, everything that we've just talked about in the last 11 chapters, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. For this is your spiritual act of worship, your true spiritual act. What is that? That we offer our bodies, that we... If all those 11 chapters are true of us, we've received a righteousness from God, then therefore we walk this way. Ephesians is the same way. Chapter 1 and 2 and 3 is the indicative, it's called, a true reality because of the gospel. So then, chapters 4, 5, and 6, the imperative. 1, 2, 3, indicative. What's true? 4, 5, 6, imperative. Walk that way if it's true. That's how he starts in chapter 4, Ephesians. Walk this way. And that'll be true of us if we are God's covenant children. There will be a delighting in God that we don't look at the law as cumbersome, as a killjoy, but as a delight because we know the Lord and that he is good. And then he has our best interests. And then he's created us. See, Israel will now show to the world what it means to walk with God. To the watching world now. You don't think other nations, I mean, think about this. Egypt's just been completely plundered by these helpless Hebrews. You don't think other nations were talking? Of course they were. So now they're going to watch. How is this nation... How are the Israelites now going to act? How are they going to treat each other? Now comes the book of Leviticus. Seriously. Because oftentimes when we read Leviticus, we're like, 
what in the heck is this? But you can't make sense of Leviticus unless you we're understanding the, the meta-narrative, the big story here of what God's doing with his people. And now this is how I want you to behave. And that's what then comes Leviticus. So come on back, folks. And we'll be talking about the holiness of God dwelling amongst unholy people and what that looks like in the book of Leviticus. But for now, when you think the book of Exodus, know that God is the all-powerful redeemer of his covenant people. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again that you continue to reveal yourself uh, not only to the nation of Israel, but Lord, as your people continue to grow and to multiply, we thank you, Jesus, that your promises were given to them and we've seen the promises kept as you have come and you have lived a life that we should have died in our place. Thank you that we can have redemption in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.